0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Mark My Words, um, the podcast series where I interview some interesting guests to give you insight that's relevant to businesses and charities. And today I'm really pleased to be joined by Chris from Code Create. Hi, Chris.
1: Hello. Hello. <laughs>
0: nice to see you. Um, so, Chris, can you tell us who you are and what you do, please? I can. Uh, yes, yeah,
1: so my name is Chris Hewitt um, and I run... A small ish enterprise, we're a commercial enterprise um, with a kind of social purpose called Co Create. Excellent. And tell us what Co
0: Create does, if that's okay.
1: Of course. Um, Co Create was set up originally with Department of Health funding. Um, as I say, we're now an independent entity, although owned by a housing association, which is slightly complicated. But our practice is all about helping people to effectively work more collaboratively. We talk about people-centred change. um, And we practice, or we certainly apply some of the principles of an approach called co-production, which has got a lot of traction in health and the voluntary sector. And we're interested particularly in helping make collaborative approaches like co-production feel a bit more accessible and attainable, especially if you're working in a big organisation where it can be quite hard to make change happen in a way that really involves people okay
0: thank you so what is actually co-production and co-design and i suppose more importantly what what are the benefits of it Mm.
1: well the benefits are when you start thinking about it quite self-explanatory because the fundamental idea is that if you're going to make a change to a service a product um, a place that you should involve the people who are going to be affected by that change in the process of making it. And why co-production is kind of necessary, I suppose, as a, com- as, a, as a concept, as a set of methods and as a mindset is because when you start trying to involve people in making those changes, you quite quickly realise it's not as straightforward as just asking people what they think because there's power structures that are there. There's often a history of different relationships. There's people's basic relationships with large organisations there's feelings of belonging or importance or worth or interest and enthusiasm confidence in themselves um all of these things that you kind of have to tackle if you want to get on a level footing with people and involve them in making change together and again that's a kind of fundamental real underlying thing throughout co-production is recognizing power imbalance um, and addressing it doing something to to change it in that relationship while you're making change together
0: Brilliant, thank you. So, yes, yeah, so kind of involving people that are going to be affected by a service or something sounds, you know, like a no-brainer. But you've just outlined all the different ways it can be challenging and the things that can stop people from doing it. I suppose. So, so if if you were trying to encourage an organisation to adopt co-production or co-design, then what what tips would you give them to try and encourage those processes?
1: Well, I think it's probably starting small. There's a if you, if you read up on co-production, there's a lot, and particularly if you look on social media, people tweeting about it, a lot of people use the term slightly glibly, and then a lot of other people shoot them down for it. So a lot of discussion is about, that isn't co-production, that isn't co-production. Um, and sort of rightly so to an extent, because um, it's a term that means a lot to a lot of people. And, uh, and if you feel like you know, it's transformed your life and your experience of using services, and particularly the way it preserves people's well-being and their power and stuff throughout process. You don't want to see it being thrown around unnecessarily. But I would say there's a lot of stuff you can be doing straight away that is working towards kind of full-blown co-production. And it's mostly about the kind of mindset, and it's like a muscle that you can develop through practice. So curiosity is a big part of it. And it's trying to kind of think outside of the, the lines that we tend to go down, particularly when we're working in our job role, Um, and challenging some of those assumptions, particularly if they're assumptions that you're making about what someone else thinks or wants or is likely to do or be motivated by, and rather than just taking your own kind of word for it, asking people. So that's a really good place to start, is trying to have more curious kind of conversations where you don't know what's going to come out of it. And I think, so with that is a bit of humility, um, but there's a bit of freedom that comes with that as well, because I think you have to kind of admit that you probably don't know everything, uh, but then there's a I say there's a kind of freedom in that because you shouldn't know everything and you shouldn't feel like you ought to know everything so you can you can kind of share the problems the challenges you're facing with people a lot more easily and the other thing is just to look really so curiosity about other people and what's important to them but it's it's kind of genuine curiosity about what you're already doing and how that might be making people feel or how people might experience interactions with you. I've just written a short piece that's about how we are perceived by people. If we are representing an organization, it's easy to feel that we're powerless because you kind of think about how much agency you have over the different circumstances of your job, what happens each day, the types of tasks you can do, where you can do them, how long you can do them for those sorts of things. It's easy to feel powerless. And then you talk to someone outside your organization, someone who your organization serves. And you maybe think you're kind of on a level footing there with them there's another person there's lots of forces in their life that they can't control same for you but you're probably representing to them the whole organization when you're speaking to them and it's easy to forget that and there's something really important about that it's thinking when we're talking to the public to people who access our services or the people we serve in general we're probably being seen to represent hold all the power of the whole organization so uh, so you kind of need to tread a bit carefully
0: Really good point, Jim. It was make when you're talking, it made me think about, um, from an individual point of view, that kind of imposter syndrome as well. So it's almost like how you think that if you're talking to a, somebody senior in a different organisation, like a senior manager in the NHS or CCG or clinical mission group or whatever, it's like, oh my goodness, these are really, you know, important people and, and I'm just this. But yeah, it's an interesting point seeing it from the other side as well. So if you're talking to the public about, what that means if you're representing an organization
1: well just to build on something you said there as well mark because i think for me that view it is easy to feel like that when we talk to kind of seniorish people in other big bureaucratic organizations but i think so one of the, the things that characterizes our approach and co-create is is a kind of trying to humanize everyone in that and help everyone step outside of their roles and i think um, it's as harmful often to view other leaders as being kind of above us as it might be to view people who are outside of our service or outside of our organization as different or other um and i think there's a if we characterize decision makers as being kind of power holders and um and acting in ways that are on behalf of the organization more than as an individual we can kind of dehumanize them and i think a lot of where co-create has the most effect is when we demonstrating that empathy and compassion towards everyone and it's it's about facilitating an open conversation between everyone regardless of how much power you hold so you kind of have to help everyone to, to work through the emotional barriers which are very different for someone at the top of an organization to someone at the bottom or on the outside but they are there still um, and and if you want change to happen I kind of think you need to allow space for everyone to push through some stuff and you said that co-create's
0: um, relatively new, been going for a few years after a kind of pilot phase, I suppose, or a, a funded phase. Um, so, and I know you've recently done some work around defining the approach of co-create, what, you know, what, what your ethos is, what the essence is, what the values are, that kind of stuff. And, and and what your working principles are all, I think, what you call them, building blocks. So can you tell us how you came up with that and, and what are they and, and why are they important, if that's
1: okay? Mm. I can, what I definitely can't tell you is what they all are. They're on our website (laughs) and there's nine of them, which is arguably too many to remember. Um, Well, it's definitely too many to remember, but the sort of thinking from where I approached it was, um, yeah, we've been going for just over two and a half years now as an enterprise, we were funded by the Department of Health for three years before that, but really our identity was quite different then um, and our working model was different and, and I'm the only person who remains from that era um so it's been completely reinvented in the last two and a half years but yes yeah, so it was um it was around springtime i think um when we started to look at you know, sort of realize we really needed to do this exercise in articulating what is it that we do how do we do it and how is that different from what other people are doing or um or the other things we could be doing and it came out of necessity because um so i took on our first member of staff event person beside me, up till then it had all been freelance associates um, who were delivering projects with us. Um, and it was in, it was through trying to share share the workload, share things like the pool of associates, the types of projects we're taking on, the project setup process, Still started to realise it's very hard to talk about, is this associate ready for doing this? Are they capable of doing this? If we couldn't clearly articulate what is it that we do do and don't do if that makes sense mm. um and someone recommended an article which um about draw the owl twilio i think is the organization probably mispronounced um but really an interesting set of ideas and really aspects of it really resonated with me about that firstly that just that it's okay not define your kind of values and ways of working for the first couple of years and actually probably better so um, that alleviated a bit of anxiety straight away that this wasn't something i should already know and actually have to be out there working doing stuff it's not about setting them and then doing them it's actually about doing them and then identifying what they are um so we did an exercise where we we asked so at the time we had maybe 10 or 12 freelance associates doing bits or pieces of different projects and asked them all what does it feel like when you're doing a co-create thing and how is it different from other things you do and you're involved in and um quite an open way and i think we had some calls with people where they gave their input um, which mark you helped with didn't you and uh so took some calls from people we some of it people did, preferred to do it written and we had a couple of prompts a few different questions to ask them but really what we wanted was a volume of, of just thoughts and feelings um, we then put that into we use Miro a lot which is a digital whiteboard platform we use it for a lot of things um and we used it in this case for doing some kind of thematic analysis so there's probably over 100 individual ideas that came back and we started to group them and theme them and look at right what are the common things we're starting to see form here um there's another important bit I think from the Twineo article that struck me which was they they have nine I mean we wind up with it's semi-coincidence that we wound up with nine, but also I suppose it felt like a safe number from what they'd done. I like their ethos about it, which was you don't. it's not there because you expect everyone to know all of these. Um, you expect everyone to be kind of able and willing to adopt them when they're doing work for your organisation. And that's how I look at them. Um, so I don't expect everyone to arrive and they're like, oh yes, I already do all of these things all the time all of my work um, but I do expect to be able to have a conversation with someone and say this one here I've noticed you don't seem to be doing this one so much now is that because you, you, you're kind of able to do it and you don't want to or because mm-hmm. um, you don't feel like you've got the skills and ability to do it and, um, it's, and so it's just a kind of starting point for conversations as much as anything and I think the other thing is that again from the article that a couple of them will resonate everyone will have a couple that stand out to them and they're like yes that's absolutely for me and then the rest of them they'll kind of be happy to live with um and then that's fine but for me they make up the whole piece you know and they're, for me they and I, and I suppose because i'm it's kind of my organization to an extent or, or i set the vision anyway um they probably resonate with me more than with anyone else
0: it's like it's like a set of expectations a set of principles a set of way of being almost that's yeah, not yeah. too jargony yeah
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think we we've called it how we work. Um, or, we, or we sometimes refer to our as our values because it's a bit simpler to say. And the other thing is that it's a point in time and it it was true then, and it's probably they're probably still broadly speaking true, but you know, we might look back at them in a few months and think we need to redo this because it's not mm. it's not about setting this is how we are forever. And we're a growing organization, you know, we're so we are mm. always shifting in how we do stuff and learning um, and getting lots of things wrong so so if so could you share
0: like one or two or, or like what stick out for you and again i'm not going to test you to remember all nine but
1: yeah first okay. yeah but i'm like i'm trying to bring up the website now because <laughs> <laughs> i've got them all there to remind me but yeah well without looking at the website the ones that really stuck out to me were one was we we care and we show it and you know we're not afraid to so and it came back from at least one of the associates to say there's a real feeling although we are in some ways a disparate team of freelancers Um, we try and demonstrate care for each other and for our clients and for participants in what we do and I think um, that's part of really definitely one of the underpinning principles of co-create is um, and it sits behind all the approaches we use as well It's treating people as whole human beings so rather than thinking well, we're vulnerable humans but when we step into the workplace we need to be kind of bulletproof resilient, you know, these kind of machines it's not like that so you need to be able to hold safely and like openly hold all the stuff that makes you a human um so so yeah and demonstrating care is a big part of that and i'd say we try and do that in the the systems and processes we develop as well as the way we interact with each other and the way we hold meetings um and the way we share problems and those sort of things so that's a really important one for me Um, and another one is about, well, two, two that are other are really important to me. One is, and they're almost contradictory with one another, but one is about things kind of getting messy, and, and I was feeling okay with that. So there's a really core thing with co-production and related approaches, which is when you describe the process and the principles, you can do it very neatly and say, this happens here, this happens here, this happens there, and then you start doing it, And you just feel like everything has fallen apart around you. And there's so many unknowns because you've invited so many people in. And the whole idea is you don't decide what the outcomes are at the start. You find them and develop them together along the way. So if you're used to, which most of us are, more traditional kind of workplace activities, where the end point is set before you begin and you're just filling in the tasks, it can be pretty unsettling. And I think we're all we all support each other to to work with that kind of feeling of being in mess but confident that it's going to um end in something good so that's that's a really key one for me and then the other side of it which is as i say you could view it being as being at odds with that a bit is about um just being really rigorous and professional about stuff um in co-production the whole concept comes from a kind of grassroots place um And it's got a lot of traction in, as I say, kind of community spaces and and holds a lot of meaning and power for people at at kind of individual and community level. And I think, so there's a lot of stuff out there. There's loads of free resources, lots of great support for people who are working at community level and want to do stuff and make a difference and, and get kind of mobile from a, a person perspective, if you like. I think there's less accessible stuff at an organizational level for starting to try and kind of dissolve the structures. And because it's all very well having lots of activated enthusiastic and passionate people who want to be involved in change. But if organizations aren't capable of, of doing that, then you know we need to find a way to help meet in the middle. So that's where our work tends to be with the kind of power holders in a co-productive situation. Um, and to do that, one of the things that we do is super rigorous and we try and present everything in a kind of professional, if you like, way. Um, so most of us have got experience of working in big organisations, um, local authorities in the NHS, other big kind of bureaucracies or corporate settings. And we've, we're kind of prepared and able to show up in those places. And like you were saying earlier, Mark, to be confident talking to heads-off stuff or, um, you know, senior CCT people and not feel like we have to kind of we don't have to slip into there into the kind of formal way of conducting meetings we can still be human and open and stuff but we but we're comfortable mm. and we present in a way that's like boardroom safe mm. I would say it's a, it's a bit of a fine line I think um, but it's definitely one of the criteria that I think if you're going to be mm. part go great you need to be able to, mm. to do
0: no I think you're right and sometimes it's about that being a critical friend as well but but holding that Get walking that fine line um, and I know some of the co-production stuff I've done for you and with you before um, your earlier point definitely and I know we've talked about this before it's like get comfortable with feeling uncomfortable because you don't necessarily know what the outcome is going to be but it's about holding the space holding the process giving people the opportunity to have their say using tools to try and bring out their own wisdom Um, but in the same way that you just don't know what's going to happen.
1: Yeah, which can be terrifying. And also, especially when you're, you know, and I really feel for, I suppose I've got a couple of years of this under my belt, so it's less nerve-wracking for me, but I still get really anxious about it, you know, that we've got a big project, you know, we substantial amounts of money have changed hands or will be changing hands. We've told people we're going to be able to do this thing, deliver this thing, and we've got no idea what it is yet. So it's pretty anxiety-inducing for people, understandably. Um, but in my experience, you know, trust the process and you focus on what's in front of you and doing that to the best of your ability and you you will get to a place that you need to at the end. Brilliant. Thank you.
0: So you, you mentioned a few times the kind of um, the associate model that you, you um, operate. And, you know, I've, I've done some associate work for you before as well. So how does that work? How does that associate model work, and what are the benefits? Would you say?
1: Um, well, it's simplest. So it works very simply. It's and it's brilliant. It's and it's really. I would say if you're trying to grow a business, um, particularly the sort of. So we're effectively a management consultancy. that's the closest kind of model you would um, compare us to. Um, and what it's meant for us. So so the way it works. So when I started the enterprise, which was two and a half years ago, it was just me. That was it. So I would go out pitching to clients. I'd design a whole project. I'd facilitate everything to facilitate workshops, write it up, write a report. A whole lot, and quite early on, you know, the plan was always to work towards getting some associates in to help. Um, and quite early on, I managed to recruit quite a few associates, including you, Mark. And then, so the way, it, the way it used to work would be that um, I knew all of our, I mean, I still do, I know all of our associates. I know what their kind of strengths are and their experience. Um, it was a very informal kind of recruitment process early on. We had one wave of recruitment for the big event. And then after that it was very informal. It was people I met through networking really, who I would kind of recruit and add to the pile. And then, um, and, I will always have the first conversation with a client and have a chat to them about what they're interested in and what, what they're hoping to achieve. And we'll have a discussion about whether we could make a difference there. Um, and then I would write the proposal. Yeah. So the same, yeah, so I, I would do the initial proposal, set out the project plan and then as, and when required, bring in associates. And initially it would be me leading and then associates delivering elements of a project, maybe going, conducting some interviews facilitating a workshop, co-facilitating with me. Uh, And as the volume of work grew, and I suppose my understanding of how we did stuff grew, so I could hand it over a bit easier, brought in more associates who could lead projects. Um, And so in that case, it would be that I would talk to the client, I'd develop a plan, and then I would hand it over to the lead associate, and they would sort of oversee other associates working on the project. So all of our associates, are they're not employed we just contract with them there's an initial agreement that they sign just to kind of sign up to our ways of working and our principles and things and and some there's some stuff in there about confidentiality and a few other bits and pieces so they're just the basics and then once you've signed up to that then we have an, an individual project agreement per project that we write up and so we'll kind of contract separately for individual pieces of work so one associate might have number of kind of subsequent projects they might have a couple that overlap a bit um some projects you know we'll have some where it's just one workshop so there'll be a bit of planning and then you run a workshop others will be a much longer piece of work you know multiple months working maybe a primary care network or a cct um and the thing it's enabled us to do is to grow in a really low risk way because for the first year and a half to almost two years the only the core cost the only sort of the only poor cost was my salary, really, and a few overheads. Um, and as work increased, we'd get more associates doing work, and as it decreased, if we had it. So when the pandemic first hit, um, you know, we really cut down for a couple of months, and there was probably two associates doing stuff while we developed some different ways to, to do things. But there was no risk, and we didn't have to think about kind of turning off the lights completely, because I hadn't taken on loads of staff to deliver the volume of work we had been doing. There's definitely some downsides as well, I would say, which is so you know, we want to have for our clients, it's really important that they have a coherent kind of experience with us. Um, and it's quite obvious why that would be more difficult when you're working with freelancers. And in my experience, so we tend to most of our associates have got at least one other kind of thing going on work-wise, whether it's a part-time job or um, their own consultancy practice. Some people have, you know, many, many, many different projects going on. So in my experience, what will tend to happen is we've got quite a few associates who are like that. They've got lots of other things, or they have limited time and they can do odd days here or there. So there's a challenge there, with just trying to get people's availability. When you're sort of getting ready to resource a project, there's a period of time when you're talking to the client and you don't yet know who's going to be available for it. And that can be a bit awkward and anxiety inducing. Am I going to have the people available at the right time? And there's also something about yeah. So once, if if by coincidence we happen to have a big project that needs a lot of capacity, and that person happens to have a lull in their other work, then they'll take on that big project. And quite often, we can then just keep them going with more and more similar size stuff because it's it can sort of eclipse the other things for long enough that they mm-hmm. uh, that they can they can let some of their other sort of um, bits and pieces fall to the side a bit more, if that makes sense. Yeah. For some people, it'll always just be something they only want to do, you know, a day a week or a day every few weeks, um, and that's fine. But ultimately, you know, as we grow, I think we are going to need more staff um, because there's something about that consistency and the time it takes to bring on board new associates. And while we do expect, I mean, there's a different expectation than with staff in that we expect associates to be kind of fully formed and to have all the skills... Um, and the experience that they will need to do the the tasks that are put to them there's no kind of development on the role because we can't afford it Um, the um yeah there would there's benefits to having staff i think Um, okay
0: so so you also mentioned about um the the impact of covid you you mentioned on that briefly so how else has that affected um, not just like in the height of the pandemic and the lockdowns, but but practice moving forward and sort of the hybrid stuff and the virtual stuff.
1: Yeah, we've had a huge impact. So our our practice beforehand before COVID, we were very kind of non digital. We were purely analog, really, as a as an enterprise. And it, in terms of, I mean, we obviously used some digital stuff behind the scenes um, for record keeping and communication, but as far as the actual work that we did, it was all about getting people into a physical space together Um, and doing workshops with creative methods, using flip charts, sticky notes, those sort of things. And obviously when the pandemic hit, that was just completely off the the cards. I remember I was facilitating a board board meeting for a big voluntary sexual organisation on the day when the lockdown came. And that was the last thing I did in person. Um, and we were all a bit tense about, should we be here or not? And it was just, I think the lockdown was announced while we were there. So yeah, after that, we had a month at least where we were just, it was myself and two associates who were doing more work at the time. And I and I, I was really unsure what to do, but I kind of had a feeling that, you know, the, the priority to get people involved in designing services and making change hadn't gone away mm. and wasn't going to go away but it looked like being able to get together in a physical space wasn't gonna be around for a while. So rather than thinking, well, that's it, we better just pack up our bags for now and then maybe get them out again in six months. Cause at the time we didn't know how long it would last, did we? I just thought, well, maybe we could, maybe there are some ways we can do stuff remotely. So um, I sort of took a bit of a chance and got paid a couple of associates to help me. And we, we developed some ways of doing stuff using Zoom, Miro, digital whiteboard platform few other things we tested out and maybe we got rid of and um, and managed to get commissioned by NHS England to do a bit of work with them on remote co-production methods and since then it's really we've gone from strength to strength I mean pre-pandemic the furthest to field we'd worked was Leicester and now you know we've got projects in Morecambe Bay I've got associates in Scotland Cornwall um, we've got stuff all over the country Right now we've got active projects. We've got one in London, we've got two in Leicester, Liverpool, Morecambe Bay, Sheffield, um, you know, all over the place. And and I think some of the things that we've found, the efficiency of doing stuff remotely, I Mm -hmm. think I would be very keen to keep a hold of, even Mm -hmm. if everything does return to kind of normal
0: brilliant thank you and you also talked earlier about kind of your role and how it's developed from that initial in the early days kind of doing everything to to now sort of being more um taking more that strategic business development that overseeing role so so how do you manage all those responsibilities and tasks and 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 also how do you look after yourself in all that as well
1: Mm. very good question (laughs) I'd I'd say it's a work in progress (laughs) would be my answer because I think, yeah, the, the idea is definitely to try and spend as much time as I can looking at the strategic side of stuff. But the reality is, um, and I don't know if this is always the case when you're growing, I, I think it may be, you can't get out of the operational side of stuff um, because we're still trying to kind of really define exactly what we do and how we do it. And so there's always a bit of kind of, you know, zooming in and out, I guess, from different perspectives. So from a work side, yeah, how do I keep myself well and manage the different things? Well, I've I've had to learn to be quite disciplined, I think. Um, I've got my own personal, somebody's made a big difference to me, things to do with just my own well-being, looking after myself a lot better than I was. Um, I haven't drunk any alcohol for nearly a year now. That's made a big difference to my kind of energy levels throughout, you know, not that I was drinking during the day, but just I would have a drink in the evening to relax sometimes and then you're not quite as sharp the next morning and I would notice the cost of that. Um, I stopped drinking coffee a couple of months ago. I was a big coffee drinker. It's another thing that's made a difference. I've, I've got a routine, sort of one of those sickening morning routines that I used to hear people talking about and think, how are you? How are you even doing that? But I, so I tend to, my alarm goes off at about six and I meditate, I write in a journal, try and read a little bit. And a couple of mornings a week go for a run as well. And that just those little things, they make a big Mm -hmm. difference to me. And then it's kind of getting yourself feeling the best you can to then, because a lot of it is about ability to make little judgment calls about where you're Mm -hmm. gonna spend your energy, I think. And for me, I noticed if I'm too tired, I can't make those decisions as easily. And then I get dragged into things that then take my energy and I haven't got enough energy to do the things that are really important. And I should have been doing first. Other than that, it's just trying to trying to surround yourself with the best people. I think is a big mm. part of it, and 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 stay in touch with them. You know, mm-hmm. talk to people and be open and communicate and listen and be honest and all of that stuff makes a huge difference. Because then there's a risk that if you don't do that. You can if you if you subscribe to an idea that you you're supposed to be some kind of um, I don't know hero or or fixer or Whatever you think you ought to be, um, it's easy to get yourself into the mindset of, you know, like, oh, I should be fixing this for everyone. Then, um, you, you know, it's, it's a, lo- it would be a lonely and unsustainable place. So I think it's being honest about the challenges and sharing with everyone and trying to work through them together that makes the biggest difference, I think.
0: so, if if you could go back three, four, five years or whatever. So the start of the co-create journey and knowing what you do now what what sort of what's the one big bit of advice you'd give yourself or tip that you know now that maybe you didn't know or didn't appreciate sort of in the early days
1: it's interesting well my because my co-create journey it's very hard to get a short answer out of me mark i do apologize (laughs) my co-create journey started i was a coordinator on the old project department of health one It, it was just really good timing getting on it because I fell into it. I applied for a different job and, uh, and didn't get it. And they offered me a chance at this one and it sounded interesting. So I said, yeah, but it just, there was something resonated. And I don't, so I don't think I would do anything different because I, I kind of grabbed it with both hands and I stuck at it and everyone else, um, when the funding was sort of ending, everyone else left one at a time. Um, and they, I was they were sort of, they blinked first. <laughs> But I've, I just felt really sure there was something that resonated with me about co-create and the way it worked. And I thought I would really like a shot at running it if the enterprise does come up and if we win, we put a business case in. And if, if they take it on, I thought I would really like a go at it. And um, yeah, I think I'd probably tell myself not to be so, I think it's confidence, but I don't think you can, it, it's being confident about where you're setting your, where, where you're investing your money I think is a big part of it how you're spending your time and your money and and trying to focus on the long game because all the time we've been trying to prove the model really and we still are mm. so there's always a pressure to try and generate surplus because you know that's that's the proof that the business is working well but really um you know i think maybe just having a bit more bit more confidence just to really invest in in marketing and stuff early on but I, then I think if we'd grown any faster, I don't know how I would have coped with it. Mm. So something
0: about almost like sticking to your guns, it almost sounds a bit like a gut feeling as well, to some extent.
1: Yeah, yeah, there's definitely something about that, I think, trusting your gut, and maybe just a bit more, I think there have been times when I've probably pushed myself harder. So I think there's something about trying to make the business into something, I think it ought to be, rather than letting it kind of, be what mm. it, what it is without wanting to sound too um kind of philosophical about it but i think it's easy to get into your head that oh we need to be bringing an x amount of income or doing it this certain way to prove that we are that thing but if you're not that thing you're not that thing so you've mm. kind of got to accept what you are and be the best you can at that i think it sounds incredibly trite but um no it's, I get, it's I get true what I mean. because i don't see so things like you can do things that will influence the the amount of work you'll get in the course of a year but you can't control it you know mm. your your income will fluctuate you mm. can you can sell and market and you can be strategic about it and you can measure what's going well and you can do more of it and all of that stuff but there are there's a certain amount of it that you will never be able to control and i mm. think being able to accept that and not take that as a personal failing or a sign mm-hmm. of like you've, you haven't got things right um yeah, I think that's that's really important.
0: Brilliant. Thank you. You've got any questions or anything you want to ask me at all?
1: Yeah, what would you say? So from your your perspective, what do you think? What do you think co-create do well and what could we do better at? Well, that's a good question. <clears throat>
0: um I think. I mean, you've, you've talked about the associate model, I think there's definitely strengths in that in terms of being able to involve maybe a wider pool than you would have if you were, you know, employing one or two people. And and then to some extent, I'd imagine, well, I know sometimes it's about then you can, you've got a wider pool to sort of um, deploy certain people with certain skills or backgrounds or experience to certain projects. So I think, yeah the strengths in that I suppose and um, what could you do different I mean I think you you know the stuff that you're doing now in terms of the rebrand uh, fresh it um, refreshing the website looking at social media getting the messaging right um, and, and expanding that I think is really important because whilst to some extent your client groups quite niche or niched actually you know when you cut away and think about what is the principles around co-production co-design you know that can widen your customer pool as well so i think you are actually doing it and and certainly from my experience of of working um with you and co-create i'd agree with all the stuff that you've said in terms of that that the royal you and you care and that you know you always feel heard and um and create a safe space an authentic space in order to create to say challenging stuff if it needs to be, to be a critical friend both ways internally as well as externally. So, yeah, I think those would be my
1: thoughts. Mm. <laughs> that's helpful, thanks, Mark. Yeah, because I think, and if I was going to say one more thing, I suppose, it's just feels really important to kind of own the fact that it's not, it's not a smooth ride. You know, it's not for any, but that's, and expecting it to be or selling it as if it will be is um, is is kind of a mistake, you know, mm. and only the fact, but actually what makes it work, it isn't the fact that we get everything right. It's that we are prepared to talk about how we can do it better. And, and we're kind of curious about that. And, we, and that we don't feel intimidated by that. And we're actually quite happy to have those conversations. Mm. That
0: whole test and learn approach, both with clients in the work, but also as an organisation internally as well.
1: Yeah, completely.
0: Good. Well, listen, thank you so much for your time. Really interesting interview. Really enjoyed it. Um, And keep up the good work.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thanks very much for having me.